0: the human animal isn't doing well in the modern world we have become domesticated and have lost our wildness the human animal show explores a return to a state of wild health our original authentic human animal and now your hosts frank Forensich and dr rodney king
1: here we go ah Aha. hey there Hey Jeremy, how you All doing? All right, you... okay, thanks. Good to see you, <clears throat> Frank. It's been hey. a while.
0: Yeah, Good to... yeah. Good to see you as well. I recognize your your Soji screen and your uh, artwork. <laughs> I know. Did that it's, before, yeah. Uh, nice. Uh,
1: it hides hide my little kitchenette. You, oh, <laughs> okay. I'm in a, in a studio, so it. it Makes things look a little bit more presentable.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, great. Well, thanks, Jeremy. I really appreciate, and I don't know Frank does you being on and uh, I got loads of questions. I'm sure Frank does too. But Frank's had the privilege of actually spending some time with you, and not, you know, he's met you, and he's. And I know, of course, both of us have have read your work, so um, definitely keen to kind of jump in there. Um, I think Frank, do you have like anything that you want to start with? Because, like I said, I, I've got some questions.
0: Yeah, well, I do have a, you might say, an introductory question, and that is, you have been on this journey to really take a deep dive into the origins and history of our ecological predicament, and Uh I'm just wondering how you feel. How are you doing right now with this journey and the state of the world and everything else? I mean, how do you feel? Yeah, well,
1: that's... That's a a great question to kind of dive in. Um, Well, basically, I've I've got some complex and deep feelings about it. I think you know one very powerful feeling I have is it's sort of it's a feeling that I would say teeters on the edge of a sense of despair, a sense of just the devastation taking place and the um, daily kind of barrage of things that seem to be moving us in the wrong direction and a, a sense that we really seem to be headed, unless something changes drastically, uh, for even worse devastation and maybe even the collapse of this entire global civilization and just mega deaths and, or the deaths of, of so many species and coral reefs and everything. It's, it's very, very difficult to hold, and um, I'm always working with that. And at the same time, there is this part of me that realizes that it doesn't have to be this way. And um, there's a sense that something can change. And uh, that's you know, oftentimes uh, there's this whole like discussion that goes on around hope and what hope means. and um, and I, I do, I, I sort of spending today in this place where there's a, a certain, uh, sense of the, the, what's possible. But it's not so much a hope in terms of thinking, oh, the odds are on our side, or yeah, we've got a 20% chance, or whatever it might be. It's like letting go of that. And just realizing like we, all of us that are alive today and seeing what's going on, we have this almost like, it feels like life itself is calling on us to just put ourselves into this kind of struggle for a, a, a possible future like a a struggle towards the light and almost like the darker it gets the brighter that light is that we can hold to lead the way into a possible future Mm -hmm. and so that's the pretty much the way i'm spending (laughs) spending my days it's um it's certainly not this kind of blithe optimism i can tell you that but um every day i'm driven by the sense of like just dive into the possibility
2: yeah so jeremy i'm going to take the kind of position that a lot of people watching this may not be familiar with your work yeah so my question is building off what you just said you've written extensively about the different patterns of meaning that western and eastern cultures have developed how do you think that these patterns have contributed to our current ecological and social crises that we are now facing
1: yeah, that's a great question. So important. <clears throat> and um, yeah, well, like you say, my, um, my earlier book that I wrote some years back called The Patterning Instinct um, is more like this history. And the subtitle of that is you know, A Cultural History of Humanity Search for Meaning. So, it did just like you say, it kind of looked at the way in which the different worldviews that different cultural complexes have had over history have actually driven uh, the, the shape of history. And one of the findings we have from, um, as I unfolded it, is discovering that this dominant worldview that we live in today actually came kind of in deep, if you look at the deep sources of it, it was all the way back to the ancient Greeks, but it really sort of took over this kind of dominance in uh, around the scientific revolution in Europe. Um, around the 17th century or so. And these last few hundred years have really been this unfolding of this devastation. And it all comes, and this is what's so important. Once we realize it's not driven by, you know, people say, oh, it's, um, it's all about um, consumerism, or uh, it's all about technology is getting too powerful. I mean, all these things are, are true, but you need to look at the deeper layers if you really want to shift the trajectory. And the deeper layer comes in the worldview, the way in which people implicitly make sense of the world, because that's what our culture tells us. This is how the world works, without oftentimes without even investigating it or realizing it. And that worldview basically tells us um, that nature is a machine. That humans uh, basically are somehow supreme above all other parts of nature because we have this identity that sort of um, makes us the only ones worth uh, worth caring about. And as humans, we're so brilliant that we can conquer nature, and we can, and we've through science we can control it, make it do what we want. And and basically, that's a worldview that sees all of the living earth as a resource to extract from. And along with that, it tells us that we're separate individuals from the rest of humanity. And so it sees all the rest of human beings, other than our own particular identity, whether it's our family or our nation, whatever it is, or our race or whatever it might be, um, but sees all others as basically just a fodder for exploitation rather than actually um, a group that we share some sense of shared humanity with. So it's that world view of extraction and exploitation that underlies everything that's gone on now for the last really almost like five centuries and is leading us to this uh precipice. Mm. So I guess my next question
2: is where do we look to then? Like where should we look to for solutions for answers? If we're living in this modern world, based on what you just said, and we have this prevailing worldview that many of us are not even aware of and how it's impacting on our behavior, where do we look to?
1: Yes. Well, I think really the first place to look to is really within ourselves. Uh, and what I mean by that is that the, the change uh, really needs to come from each of us, from our hearts, from our really touching into shifting that identity that we're told that we are from our dominant worldview and beginning to realize um, the the kind of false assumptions that many of us just grow up with. And I did myself until realizing, oh, this is not actually true. This is not scientifically true. This is not spiritually true. Um, And then from ourselves, and equally important is with our community, because I think one of the you are know, um when Frank asked um earlier about um, where how I'm feeling, and I talked about the sense of hope, but not a hope that's attached to an outcome. but um but uh, to me, the it feels that the most powerful source of potential future, um, light and um, life-affirming a future that is possible for us comes from the fact that as human beings, we actually are not evolved to be in this place of destruction. We we don't do well with it. We're actually born wanting to connect with others. We're born wanting a sense of shared community, wanting to feel connected with the rest of life and believing and feeling that all of life is part of what we're about. And then our, our dominant culture has to kind of... Um, like kick that out of us has to sort of put almost like armor around us and like um like kill all of those like more sort of pro-social and pro-life feelings that we have so this is why i say to sort of begin with ourselves because we need to kind of shed some of our own misconceptions that i feel all of us have unless we're Happen to have been born and raised in an indigenous culture somewhere, and so we might already come from that place. Um, And then start to look at the deeper systemic layers around that. But I feel like until we do our own internal work, we may end up, um, even if we're actively engaged in trying to make things better, we may end up actually undermining our own positive intentions if we don't um, look at our own and internal makeup first. I don't know if that makes sense to you.
2: No, totally. I mean, myself and Frank have spoken about that on many occasions. I mean, you've kind of hinted to this, but I think it might be important at this point just to drill down. So in your view, what would be the most harmful or limiting belief systems or values prevalent in our modern society today? Taking to the fact that we've said that, you know, what you said was that inherently that this is not how we want to be, but we are. Yeah. Right, And so if it is typically unconscious for many people, there's value in actually highlighting what these problems really are so that you know what to tackle.
1: Mm. Yeah, another great question. And um, in my sense, I I would sense that the the most important place to begin is is really with like our um, implicit sense of identity like you know who am i um because in the in our dominant culture it's pretty easy to answer um it's basically well i mean almost all the time the answer Ultimately, even though people may not realize it, it comes from this kind of Cartesian. This sort of quote from Descartes from the seventeenth century: "Cogito, ergo sum." I think, therefore, I am. So, for almost all of us, our identity is somewhere in like our mind, like somewhere in our head. Mm. Um, And even when we try to be, even in meditation, oftentimes or whatever, we might um, go, "Yes, I have a body." And I want to connect with my body, which is, is better than not connecting with my body. But um, but the very notion of I have a body is like there's this kind of essence of me which is kind of separate from my body, separate from the rest of life, and that sense of fixed identity ties in with this notion of um, the um, I I'm separate from all others. Like I have this out of mind, like this almost like this is shell, this existential shell around me. That all, causes a great deal of alienation and isolation from others, but above all, it's and it misses the underlying reality that we now understand from science and all kinds of spiritual traditions, that really my identity is a layer upon layer of interconnectedness, that actually that very sense of identity of who I am is almost like an emergent phenomenon arising from interactions between things, interactions with with my past, with those around me, with those I love, my very sense of values and what is what is real and what's not it comes from my interactions with those around me, um, and with community. And over time, it's possible to expand your sense of identity, to include not just um, <clears throat> your community uh, and but all of humanity, and then to go beyond all of humanity to all of life. To get to this point, they, there was this great quote by the. Um, 20th century humanitarian and Nobel Prize winner, Albert Schweitzer, um, who said at one point, he said, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. And once we're able to get to that recognition of a sense of identity, it changes the way we react and we respond to everything, changes the way we think about our own lives, what we want to do with our lives, what our values are. And the important thing to re- recognize is that doesn't negate the fact of my separate identity. Like if, if I'm sort of walking along and somebody comes in and hits me on the arm, um, that'll hurt me and it hurt anybody else. And, and if I'm hungry, I'm hungry and other people may not be hungry. So, of course, there is a way in which I, as a separate uh, organism, have experiences and subjectivity. I'm not for an instant denying that. But what happens in our dominant culture is we are told that that is all there is in existence. That is the only aspect of existence. And that cuts off a sense of deep meaning um, arising from that interconnectedness. Yeah, I love that. And I,
2: I was just thinking, as you were saying that, Jeremy, I guess for a lot of people hearing that, their greatest fear then to unfix their identity, if that's the way we can describe it, right? is In doing that, they will lose who they are. And I guess that's the fear. That's why so many people in the modern world don't want to enter into what you just proposed.
1: That's right. And so that's a great point. <clears throat> and, um, and oftentimes, you know, when people start talking about the sense of identity expanding beyond your individuality, people, especially in, in the United States or in anglo cultures around the world um often feel like oh that sounds like communism you know like um that's that that sort of group identity that's and and you know we'll lose uh, my I'll lose my sense of individuality and in who i am and there's this great point made by an indigenous scholar called ladonna harris who um she's um she's a, Native American scholar here in in North America, but she and a group of people some years ago um, did a study of what they called indigeneity. Like they looked for shared values around all indigenous cultures around the world. And she worked with Aboriginal people in Australia, people in Africa, um, and South America, and together they came up with certain principles of indigeneity. Um, And that was, and it was all about basically what we're talking about, sense of Identity coming from relationship, from a sense of respect, from a sense of reciprocity and a sense of redistributing. If you have more of something, that your identity is elsewhere. And in an article she wrote once, she said people often... Um, ask me when I'm explaining all this. They say, well, I I don't want to lose my individuality. I don't want to lose who I am in this. And she explains, actually, once you really live into this relationship-based way of living, you can expand your individuality. It doesn't diminish your individuality. It allows you to really fully express who you are in a much greater way. So you can absolutely be yourself in relating to other others around you. You can follow your own unique individual path as part of this much greater sense of identity. And it gives more meaning and a greater sense of fulfill, fulfillment to your life as you do that. I think that's a great point that people simply don't realize in our dominant culture.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point there, Jeremy. And I was also, as you were saying that I was just kind of thinking back myself and Frank in a previous episode have spoken to um, Don Four Arrows Jacobs, who has also, yeah, yeah, who's written a lot about this whole idea of the difference in world views. Right. One, One of the questions I would ask you there is that if you look at just the scholarship around these ideas, they tend to really focus on Western you know, perspectives, you know, from Plato to Aristotle and so forth, but very little has actually been done in in what you've been talking about this in indigenous worldview, right? And it's almost as if it's been overlooked, but clearly it's something very important to go back and look at and bring into the present moment, mostly because of everything you just described is how they viewed themselves in relationship to the world, to the planet, and to the cosmos, right? To the universe and beyond.
1: Yes, I I think that's right. And that's why, you know, your your question was so apropos, like, in terms of where do we begin? Because what I um, sort of really discerned in um, this more recent book I wrote called The Web of Meaning, uh, the subtitle Integrating Science and Tradition to Find Our Place in the Universe, one of the Uh, biggest insights that really only arose after I was actually writing the book was realizing that actually our values arise from our sense of identity. So if you have that fixed identity of I'm an individual, then your values will naturally be individualistic values, like maybe libertarianism or believing in capitalism or seeing the whole world as a a zero-sum game and then saying, well, I better get mine because otherwise somebody will take advantage of me and everything's based on that. If you expand your identity to include your community, and um, that shifts everything because you begin to be doing things for others around you, but that in itself has also some ambivalent characteristics because then you might focus on the in-group versus the out-group. So you might say we don't want those foreigners to come and ruin our community. So that that it's, itself has issues, but it's it's one step beyond that fixed identity. And again, if you can if you you can expand to Include your identity as a nation, um, which again can have very positive uh, um, elements if you truly, if you really see yourself as um, as part of a, as a nation state, and see people who are suffering and impoverished in in your nation, and want to make that like add to well being for your country, but also can lead to that zero sum game of my country versus other countries. But that's where if your identity expands to all of humanity. Then notions like justice for all and peace um, and um, a sense of wanting well being for all human beings shifts all of your, your values around what matters. And of course, if, if you then expand to that Albert Schweitzer kind of layer of I am life, then you want a life affirming future. Then you'll be driven to get engaged in trying to fight back against this ecological destruction taking place, not because in your mind you think, oh I should do that um but because you want to do that in the same way that if someone is hitting my arm like I was saying before, I don't go, oh I guess I should stop this person hitting me I, I, I push back and say no like don't uh, th- this leave me alone you know and so similarly once we realize we are life, we're driven to act in the interests of all of life.
0: Frank? Yes um. One thing I've found useful is the study of history and especially the study of time, where if you look at the scope of human history and human thinking, and then you come to realize that the indigenous worldview is historically normal and that this mechanistic view has come about only in the last few moments of our history. And from that point of view, this new view is historically abnormal most people don't get that because if you if you grow up in this new view it seems normal but once you study history then it becomes it's revealed as being abnormal the indigenous world view is the dominant view of humans Mm -hmm. on this planet Mm -hmm. and that's that's groundbreaking for a lot of people yes absolutely
1: and and I so appreciate your writing on that. I I feel like your your um, book was uh, a book that really actually clarifies that and, so well, and and shows how the basically underlying elements required for true health and flourishing are so different than what our dominant world, um, modern world sort of. Um, the context that it puts us in and um so someone else who writes i feel really well about this um it's got some great uh ideas is um dasha Narvaez, um and um, as n a r v a e z is the last name and um she is an evolutionary biologist um or an evolutionary psychologist essentially um who <clears throat> came up with what she called an the sense of the concept of an evolved nest and what she basically explains is that every species, every mammal um actually um, is born to flourish by being part of its particular evolved nest and she's taking the word nest as a metaphor if you will. so we can think of a nest like a bird's nest like a little chick, is born into that nest, and and everything is optimized around it. It's to um, to grow to a healthy bird. Um, it's safety, it's uh, warmth, etc. But her point is that and um, every mammal has a nest, and for uh, that optimizes for their evolutionary, um, based on their evolutionary needs for their well-being, and the human evolutionary nest is exactly the kind of world that um, humans were born into as nomadic hunter-gatherers, just like you described, Frank. So uh, for a newborn uh, human, um, the evolved nest is just lots of touch and um, not just uh, um, being given care by a mother, but all kinds of parents, parental figures around. And then growing up, having a sense of just connecting with all other children around, not like uh, being limited according to certain certain um, age group or whatever. And not having this kind of hierarchical dominance and authoritarian structures and learning, you have to do this and you don't do that. And um, right, from in, right, right from the outset, she points out, this whole thing of like le- uh, pinning your infant in a separate room, leaving them to cry to sleep is the most traumatizing, cruel thing you can do to a newborn infant who they need that touch and that care. And so like all the way to to schooling, we sort of, um, we think schooling is something that, oh, we humans have to do. We have to go to school and, and sit down in these classrooms and learn things and learn your alphabet. And actually what it turns out is that actually humans as humans have naturally evolved and drive to learn our particular culture. We have these uh, evolved um, instincts of like curiosity um, and play and sociality that cause us to learn. So when humans are left, like in that nomadic hunter-gatherer environment, um, as to grow up within that environment, they naturally learn, they want to learn, they're curious and they're open. Um, And of course, we have the opposite. We force uh, our children to basically um, become sort of cogs in this machine mm. of this dominant culture, and um, we kind of teach them how to lose who they really are. So th- there is some uh, there's this movement of what's called unlearning, where people um, have learned that when you actually let your kids um, do like what they want, just and um, follow their own path, they will naturally actually end up. Learning more and, and developing far more um, healthy instincts about who they are than the way than the way we do it, and it goes all the way through to um, our culture and forcing values on us, um, v- values around domination, patriarchy, and all kinds of values that we then take for granted that are absolutely unnatural and leads to the destructive behaviors.
0: Mm. Right. So would it be fair to say that modern culture is traumatizing to most of the people? And and that's the paradox, right? We have all these beautiful things that give us comfort, but it's also stressogenic. It's also traumatizing. And we're failing to see that, I think.
1: I think that's completely right. Um, I mean, basically, we live in... A, a culture that is, in some ways, almost like a um, culture of mass psychosis. We're we're so far from our sense of our true natures as human beings and how societies could live that um, it, it's virtually, essentially, anybody who's adapted well, quote unquote, well to this culture and learn how to be successful can only really do it to some degree by. Um, maladapting to their own sense of well-being. Like they sort of learn to play the game and they mm. learn to shut off their emotions and they learn to um, conquer those feelings and to um, become hard and uh, and sort of do that sort of zero-sum game. And in doing that, even um, though they might end up uh, materially successful based on the standards of our culture, um, they end up causing destruction for themselves, for those around them, and, of course, being part of this machinery that's destroying the rest of life. So <clears throat> that's where I, beginning with our, with ourselves is a key point of like uh, turning things around. Because once we recognize those things about ourselves, it actually frees us up. It frees us to be able to get off um, <clears throat> what some people call the the hedonic treadmill. like there's this kind of treadmill that you get on and, the, and the, the more successful you are on it, the faster you have to run in order to just like maintain some sense of doing okay. Um, and you're putting all that energy um, not for your own well-being but basically for the the greater um, wealth maximization of the billionaires and the shareholders from those corporations who have created that treadmill to begin with.
2: Mm. I was just also thinking, you know, I really like that analogy of the nest because we. I think one of the things that most people don't reflect on is that if you go back to the beginning of time, since the moment we were here, our nest was being deeply connected to the natural world. I mean, we yes. could have we we could have come into any other form, right? Why that specifically? Why that being our nest and not being something else? Because you know, if we if we take just look at where we are now. Why didn't we kind of start in the place where we are now? We didn't. And so I think that's an important point because that's speaking again to where we have come from and where we should be. I guess the question then, Jeremy, is taking into account that pretty much none of us, most of us for that matter, if we're living in the modern world, we can't just go and go live out in the middle of nowhere, right? And, and grow our own food and outside of just starting with ourselves, I mean, what else can we do? How do we actually navigate the chaos that we are living in? Because it's constantly bombarding people and just smashing them down.
1: Yes, yeah, I I think you're right about that. And it's, you could even say that, um, you know, if you did choose to just like say, okay, I'm leaving this whole thing behind going out into the countryside, going to do my own thing. Um, If you have the the wealth and the wherewithal to be able to do that, then there could be a moral argument to say, well, actually, why are you just, again, focusing on your own identity then at the expense of others? Why aren't you taking some of that privilege you might have and actually working with that to actually um, make the welfare of others a little bit better who couldn't even have the freedom to think about Uh, Having making those choices. So I think that that kind of leads to answering uh, your question to some degree, because I think once we can begin to expand that sense of identity uh, beyond ourselves, the first thing I think we need to do to begin to re-navigate ourselves, reorient ourselves in a health, life-affirming kind of way, is uh, to Start to relate to those others around us from a sense of um, shared um, well-being. Um, actually, um, looking at ways to kind of uh, realize our connectedness with others, which, um, as, as I as I describe in this book, the web of meaning, that realization of connectedness with others and with all around us actually has a, a simple. Um, th- there's a simple word in normal human language to describe that, which is love. Um, that that's Love is something that arises once we realize that we are part of and we embrace that connectedness with those around us. And we start to live our lives according to that. And, and we start to offer that kind of love to ourselves and to those close to us. That begins to build a, a sort of a solid, a more solid foundation to then relate to all or, all that else is out there. And I think one of the most important things that we can do is when we see others that are maybe politically or economically on the opposite side and doing things um, that we and I and 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 I'm sure many other people listening to this program feel harmful and bad um, is not to then um, make them the other, not to make them the enemy and um, <clears throat> actually do almost exactly the inverse of the damage that they might be doing to begin with, which is like sort of separate things out and creating um, binary oppositions, us versus them and all that stuff. But to realize that even those uh, people that seem to be doing, or maybe are doing harm Mm. are themselves coming from a place where they want to feel good about themselves, like with the exception of a very, very tiny percent of people in the world who are literally psychopaths, who don't have um, emotional connection and, and and simply lack empathy entirely. Um, virtually everybody else cares about those around them. They want to feel good about themselves. They want to feel a sense of love. And many people might've been traumatized right from earliest um, the earliest months and years of their life so as to have lost a lot of those feelings of love, but that doesn't mean they're not suffering inside from that. And so I think starting from that place and even while we um, push back um, he- and uh, forcefully against the forces that are doing damage and um, realizing that we are all actually part of a shared humanity, I think is absolutely crucially key. There's this wonderful quote from actually a sound healer called Sterling Tolls, comes from Detroit, Um, who said um, something that really stuck with me, he said, we must not only heal the suffering that oppression causes, but we must also heal the suffering that causes oppression. And, and I think that's so profound because we realize that it's the oppression that comes around, comes ultimately from suffering. And doesn't that doesn't mean we accept it or we say it's all right, far from it. But it means that the way to respond to it is not necessarily to fight back with a fist because all that does is lead to further reactions that end up causing even greater suffering. But it means to actually, um, cre- like actually, come back with a stronger force, which is that force of love, that force of connectivity, that force of actually wanting all of us to flourish together.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. My next question, we're going to shift gears just a little bit here. I have to ask you this because this is now currently the hot topic. What are your views on the rise of artificial intelligence and the consequences for us all?
1: Well, I think that actually the more I've been delving into that. The more concerned I am, actually, for its potential to really be as powerful a force of um, potential destruction as maybe even more powerful than a whole cl- than the whole climate breakdown, or um, even more powerful perhaps than than nuclear weapons in terms of. Uh, The the rate at which it's exponentially increasing, um, its power so fast, we don't even know what's going on. Um, And for anybody who is curious to understand the sort of underpinnings of what I'm talking about, I strongly recommend um, watching a video put out by Tristan Harris. Um, And um, uh, he is part of a group called the Center for Humane Technology, um, and it's called the AI Dilemma. It's very easy to find on YouTube and, and he takes an hour. He, he's a, a, a leading um, tech person who's been working on the issues of um, around social media problems for years. And he and others very, very connected in the middle of that AI explain how you really have to expand, like almost like blow your mind to realize how fast these changes are are happening. Um, and the reason why it's so potentially dangerous is this AI we we don't people who even who have developed it don't understand exactly what it's doing and it seems to be developing the potential to actually teach itself even when it's not told to teach itself and start to come up with greater and greater layers of intelligence which obviously would enable it to then exponentially um, use that intelligence to create the next layer level of AI intelligence beyond what humans could even think of doing. So there, there's a potential for something really exponential to take off, and I feel this could threaten, um, even more powerfully, uh, the uh, the potential like the potential for some flourishing future into the long term. But there are ways in which it might, um, ironically, lead to a um maybe even the the kind of the transformation towards a positive life affirming future that we need and w- what i mean by that is that when we when normally we're looking out at the um beyond the horizon sort of like when frank you were asking me to begin with how i'm feeling about where where things are going we see the the way in which we're heading towards a precipice. But we are also seeing that as a a collective intelligence, humans have not been responding fast enough because we're dealing with what are known as wicked problems, meaning that they're so complex and they're not right in front of our face. And so people sort of put them off and they don't even realize intuitively that's happening. But, um, and sometimes people like Carl Sagan or others have said, you know, what humans need to really come together as a total um, species and really develop, to get to a whole next level of collective self-organization is a threat from outside. Like if some if some extraterrestrial came and threatened us, all of a sudden we'd, we'd, we'd come together in ways we can't even think about doing now. And it's just possible that the threat of AI might turn out like that. And um, th- through all the divisions we have between nations, and different um, economic uh, barriers and all that, it's possible that we, uh, at some point we may realize this is a threat that we as a human species need to work together to respond to. And I'm not saying that AI itself is bad. Um, the, the point to understand is it has the potential to develop in a way that could cause it to actually act um, very powerfully against what we are as human beings. But ultimately, that's where I feel what we need to respond to AI is not then to develop some stronger AI to um, to counter it or whatever, but to develop what I call in um, my book, The Web of Meaning, an integrative intelligence. So if we think of AI as artificial intelligence, what an integrative intelligence is, <clears throat> um, is it recognizes <clears throat> that that AI, that artificial intelligence only comes from one aspect of what intelligence is, which is the computing, conceptualizing, symbolic kind of intelligence that in humans, we've developed far more than other mammals around us. And I call that conceptual intelligence. But as humans, we share with all other life entities out there, all other mammals, all other plants, even um, single cell organisms, we share what I call animate intelligence, which is this intelligence that life has evolved over billions of years. And as humans, we're capable of integrating those two types of intelligence. So we were talking before about Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. Basically, that's the kind of thinking that's led to AI and that AI itself is almost like the manifestation of that Sort of thinking of separation but if we can begin to develop a more powerful integrative intelligence recognizing that what we are is actually life and but we are a thinking conceptualizing manifestation of life and but we're part of life that's potentially can allow us to connect with the rest of life the rest of our um uh of our sort of shared humanity to come up with a different set of values that could potentially counter the power of AI.
2: Mm, I think that's a really good perspective. Frank, you got one more question. Oh yeah. I was
0: just going to add one thing about AI and the the consequences is that um, it erodes trust and trust is already, you might say on the ropes. A lot of surveys have shown that people They've shown a declining level of trust in modern society. People don't trust uh, business. They don't trust government. They don't trust their neighbors. They don't trust anybody. And now, with AI eroding our trust in, for example, written documents, if you can't trust written documents, that is the foundation for the modern social order. If you can't trust that, then the only alternative is to have real time conversations with people. And so maybe the backfire effect here would ultimately be good for us. But
1: um, I I, I agree. I agree with you, Frank. I think that's a very, very good point that it may well be that I mean, we we can't trust any visual image. I mean, very soon, within months, um, most likely um, anything we see any video um anything we see we'll say well maybe it's true maybe it's not and it is meaningless i can so then what can we trust only other people in in our sort of analog material tangible world and i agree i think we might find a backlash that may just also be more life affirming yeah, so I guess the irony is it might
2: ultimately bring us back together, that we may invariably start craving yes. real connection again. Yeah. <laughs> because we've been living in this virtual world, but it's not working out, as Frank said. And we're all starting to realize that much of it is fake anyway. And Now it's going get, to get even worse. Right. Probably the only solution really is, is to reconnect person to person.
1: Yes, I, I think that I think that's absolutely right. And so, yes, I think what what we can see clearly is that it's unfolding so fast that basically anybody who feel who says, "I like, oh, I can see how it's going to go," we can't believe that because um, none of us can, we, we're entering a period of a real sort of a cultural, <clears throat> a sort of a techno-cultural societal chaos period as it unfolds. Um, and that's where when you do enter into chaos periods, <clears throat> when you're in a, a complex system and systems go through that that sort of chaos before they transition to the next system, <clears throat> that's where it gets even more important to maintain our core <clears throat> human values. Because um, what happens when a system enters chaos is whatever sort of what's known as an att- attractor, whatever um, set of coherent energy Um, fields actually become stronger than the others is where the system then naturally migrates to so if the stronger coherent energy field is um, prejudice and hate and fear then we could lead to a very very bleak future but if the if a more predominant energy field comes around through these things we've been talking about shared connection a sense of coming from a true sense of ground itself, a true sense of our identity with all of life, coming from a place of love and connectedness, then if enough of us can kind of share in that deeper field, um, there is the potential that that chaos can actually recohere into a more positive life-affirming system.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. So Jeremy, just to end off, because we're coming to the end, no questions this time. What would you, based on everything we've been talking about, what do you want to leave us with?
1: Mm. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I, I feel I'd like to leave us with this. Is if anybody does, yeah, you know, hear, hear this conversation and finds themselves um, really um, resonating with it and thinking about it and saying, yeah, what 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 does this mean for me for what I do? I would sort of go back to that Albert Schweitzer quote of, you know, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. Um, And as he said, and I cannot but have reverence for all that is called life and recognize that in that from that respect, each of us is part of this unfolding system that what we everything we've been talking about the way things are unfolding it's not like some spectator sport like where we're we're in the crowd and we're watching what's going on which side's winning and yay like we're actually part of the sport itself we're part of that unfolding future that the future itself really we can think of almost like as a verb like it's we are all co-futuring together um and once we, you realize that it's allows you to realize that there's kind of meaning in the choices you make each day. Um, You can choose to say, it's all going to hell, or it's got nothing to do with me, or you can choose to say, I care about this. What can I do with my own particular um, like beam of light to kind of begin to connect with others around me in those positive ways? It's a decision we can continually make and remake every day. And so I just kind of encourage anyone attuning to these ideas to think about that from themselves and ask, ask yourself, what is it that I can do to be part of that life affirming unfolding future?
2: Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jeremy. We appreciate your time. We'll let you go. But uh, yeah, amazing. And uh, we'll put all the links underneath the, the, the interview. And obviously, you know, people can go and, and see your work and find
1: your books. Great. Thanks for uh, engaging questions. Really enjoyed talking with you both, Rodney and Frank. Thanks very much. Awesome. Thanks, Jeremy. Cheers.
2: Cheers, man. Take care. We'll
0: talk. Good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really
2: really like that one. I really enjoyed listening to Jeremy. I think he definitely was very elegant and answered those questions in a way that really made sense and are usable and it's actually actionable. So, you know, like we've been saying this the whole time, right? As we're going through these interviews and talking to different people, we're trying to find some some meaning, some answers, some direction, mm-hmm. both for ourselves and for our own students and of course everybody else listening to the you know the podcast. So I think definitely that that's a that's a winner.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely.
2: Hi, Dr. King here and thank you for taking the time out of your busy life to listen to myself and Frank as we explore with our guests ways to return the human animal to wild health. For more information on Frank, you can go to his website at exuberantanimal.com or visit humananimal.info to find out more about my coaching programs, read the blog, get your hands on some human animal gear or explore our upcoming events. Until the next
1: time, stay wild and free.